0: I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 203. I'm here in my Deep Work HQ, joined by my producer, Jesse. Jesse, it took me, what, six months to stop calling you my professor? It's muscle memory. You said it a few times. It was pretty funny. It was actually pretty common. I mean, it's muscle memory. During the semester, I, you know, I'm, I'm around other professors, but now I feel like I have that in. Speaking of the Deep Work HQ, I've been thinking about it recently. We've talked about this before, but now I want to get serious, maybe get some serious feedback about it, because we're coming up to the point where we signed the new lease, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as Jesse will attest, we have yet to do work on any part of this HQ except the studio. You're a busy guy. you got a lot of stuff going on. You know, but it'll be fun. I am a busy guy, uh, but the studio, we put a lot, you know, we're, we're, we're always working on the studio. We're always adding new technology. We always have people coming in and out, be it sound technicians or FCC <laughs> experts, shout out to Albert power company. Like we're always working on things. We have video people, et cetera. The rest of the HQ is uh, dismal. And I think it's time that we actually make this into, into something better. We've talked about this before, but we've never had a good idea. You've been here now for a while. What should what are we going to do? we got a large room, a common space room that has bookshelves that I'm about to ransack for my new library study at home. And we have a, a standalone office that right
1: now is storage. We have a bunch of old lights in there and, and piles of books. First thing we need is, yeah, we need to get b- books to fill that and we need a clean lady. We do need a cleaning service. We should have a year. cleaning lady like once a month.
0: The the people next door have one. Yeah. So we should get in on that. Yeah, and I also want to get on this is this is riveting for the audience. I also want to get in on the uh the big water bottles that goes into the bubbler water dispenser thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, because the water's like really metally here and not good. Uh I do want to get into that. But I gotta figure it out. I'm thinking about maybe we could have other writers right here. I don't know. I was thinking about making the conference putting like a giant Table in the middle of the common space, like a library table, or maybe it should be like couches and chairs. And I don't
1: know, man. i'm We could buy some furniture and throw it back of the
0: truck. Just haul it over. Well, anyways, one way or the other, uh, I'm inspired by getting my my study and my home back in the shape. I'm inspired to we'll, we'll get the HQ uh, into some sort of shape.
1: That's exciting. Yeah, into some sort of shape.
0: I think having some of my writer friends be able to like reserve time and come out here and get away from their home and write that could be cool
1: yeah that would be really cool actually yeah
0: we could even get some other podcasters in here we like when we're not using it Don't want this all to go to waste i have big plans but no time um all right well anyways we've got a good show god i'm looking here i'm looking through the script we got some good questions we got some good calls we'll get through a lot here uh, i want to start with a a brief news reaction. As usual, I'm, I'm less interested in the, the details of the news as much as using this as a hook to get into a, a maybe a slightly larger discussion of some bigger points going on with tech and culture. But I wanted to start with an article that a listener sent me that came from Pew Research. All right, so it's a, an article. This is from June 27th, so quite recent. For those who are watching on YouTube, youtube.com slash Media, you can see the article. Those who are listening at home, I'll narrate it. The title of this article is Twitter is the go-to social media site for U.S. journalists, but not for the public. Uh, And if we, we look at it, it's based off of a survey. So a recent Pew Research Center survey of uh, people from the news industry. So we have reporters, editors, and others working in the news industry. I want to hone in on one particular chart, which you you should be seeing. I'm going to scroll this up now. There we go. So you should be seeing this chart if you're watching uh, online. Basically, if you're listening, here's what it is. It's two bar graphs. Uh, On the left, it shows for each of these common social media style sites, what percentage of U.S. journalists say they use that most or second most in their job? And then on the right, it is what percentage of U.S. adults say they use that platform, particular platform, regularly to get news? So we're comparing the platforms that journalists use regularly when their top two sites they use in their job versus the websites that the average U.S. adult uses to get news. That's the comparison being shown here. Left is journalist, right is adults. The big thing you'll notice, and this is from the headline, is that for the journalist, Twitter dominates. 69% of the journalists surveyed say Twitter is their top one or two platforms they use for their job. You look next to it, you look at U.S. adults, and you see Twitter is 13%. 13% regularly use that to get news. So there is a major difference between the digital world in which journalists live versus the digital world in which most U.S. adults live. Journalists are very Twitter focused. That is where they find news, that is where news is discussed. The average American adult is not. Now, this matters for a couple reasons. One, as we've covered numerous times on this show, There is a real effect, a real filter effect of what you see and how it is portrayed based on the particular platform you look at. So Twitter creates its own ecosystem of what's important and what's not important, how we should feel about this, how we shouldn't feel about this. And it's a very emotionally salient ecosystem. So it not only pushes things to the forefront as being important, but it does so with great emotional gusto. So if you're a journalist who lives in this world, you are being exposed to these huge, uh, seemingly huge upswellings of emotion and commitment and engagement and activism, which may actually be largely artifice or at the very least largely separate from what the population as a whole believes. This is why, as we covered in previous shows, we're beginning to see some of the major news companies pushing their staff away from Twitter because of this effect. New York Times being the most prominent example of them telling their reporters Please stop using Twitter. <laughs> like this is this is not helping the quality of our reporting. The other issue with Twitter, it's not captured directly, but is implied by this graph, is that the reaction to what you do as an individual who posts on Twitter can be quite strong. We talked about this in a previous episode. Feedback is something we're wired to take seriously. So if you're a journalist who uses Twitter as your primary tool, like 69% of US journalists do. You're constantly working with this digital sword of Damocles hanging over your head. What if I say the wrong thing and really upset the crowd on Twitter? What if I miss out a particular caveat or don't mention this other factor that could be happening and I really get swarmed on by other people? This is anxiety producing. This is nerve wracking and it really can push coverage in certain directions. Certain issues are never talked about or other issues are drowned in all sorts of defensive maneuvering. So there is all of these negative side effects, both what you see and how you worry about people seeing you if Twitter is the main thing you use. Most people don't use it journalists do so it's an interesting separation there is however something new i want to remark about new to this show that i think is significant and i don't quite understand this well but i want to put a preliminary stake in the ground here let's look at the right side of this chart so the sites that u.s adults in general use to get news look at number two youtube it's the second most used site by u.s adults to obtain news So what's going on with that? Well, I think what this might be reflecting is generational. There is, I think, for the younger adult generations, what I guess you might call Gen Z and the younger millennials, uh, a shift towards YouTube being a replacement for what my generation would have used cable for. That, That YouTube has become... Uh, your source of television style entertainment. And so, why are you getting a lot of news from YouTube? Because that's where I watch shows, putting quotation marks around them because they look very different than they did before. But if I want news, maybe I'm looking at Breaking Points or Kyle Kalinske, or if, if I'm on the other side of the political spectrum, you know, Ben Shapiro or what have you. But this is actually where I think a whole generation is going for relatively reasonably produced video content. Now, I think this is really significant. I think it's really significant because it is a different game than is being played by the real flashy players in the online digital attention economy. We're looking now at the war between TikTok and Facebook, and there's Instagram, and there's Twitter, and these are the platforms that are getting a lot of attention now, but they're playing a different game. Those platforms are playing what I think of as being the more short-term game of how do we get maximum engagement from people today. How do we get you to put your eyeballs on this app as long as possible? And so Facebook adds this feature and then TikTok tries something different and then Instagram tries to pivot and let's try to use Reels here to be more TikTok-like. And it's just fighting short-term to get people to glue their eyes to these screens. And they're using user-generated content. Most of it's not super high quality. Fine. YouTube, I think, is playing a longer game. It is looking at what happened when the web came along and it completely disrupted and democratized the production and publication of text. You used to have to be a newspaper or a magazine or a book publisher to have any sort of mass audience for text. The web said anyone could do this now. YouTube is doing this with video. And I think it's a really important shift. It's going to uh, change long term how we, how we consume and produce Video content away from the TV and towards these new sort of mediums that YouTube is experimenting with. And I don't think the game is how do I do this addictive TikTok style experience that's going to get you glued to this as much as possible. I mean, maybe they care about that in the short term, but the long term impact, I think of democratizing video is going to be a complete change of that landscape. So we see hints of that in 22% of US adults getting their news from YouTube. That's because YouTube is their TV. That is their cable TV. They don't go to CNN. They go to a YouTube channel of someone they trust. They want to know about, let's say, the latest COVID news. Instead of going to Fox News or MSNBC, they will switch to something like John Campbell's YouTube page. A, a former nurse, an instructor of nurse who has a YouTube page where every other day or maybe even every day, he literally just takes the statistics of what's going on in UK in particular with COVID numbers, and he goes through them and the camera shows him Uh, the paper and he just ticks things off with his pen and just let's go through the numbers and see what's happening. 2.5 million subscribers. He had more people watching those videos than are watching the morning show on CNN. So this I think is, is interesting. And where is this all going to lead? Well, I, I honestly think the red herring in this conversation, the red herring is the highly engaging, addictive TikTok style user generated, go straight into my brainstem type quick, quick 15-second content. What I think is going to emerge from the YouTube world is this medium-level production value. Like I think this is what's going to be important. This is what is going to disrupt the the, the television, in particular the cable television uh, landscape, which is hundreds of billions of dollars of economy. What's going to disrupt this is uh, people creating videos, but not creating videos quickly with their phone to go to TikTok, but people who have some production value that they have a set, they have some good lights, they have some people working on it. It's still a fraction of the cost of producing a half hour of standard terrestrial linear cable programming, but it's, it's, it's good enough production values. We saw that happen in the blogging revolution. It was individual bloggers that gave way towards uh, content sites. You get the like buzz feeds and the slates and the Vox that actually were, uh, replicating newspaper magazine quality, but at a fraction of the production cost. We're seeing that in audio. What's happening in podcast? We're seeing this large industry eating into and about to conquer radio, but what are the shows that are doing this? Well, they have radio style production values. I mean, there's a reason why we're in this studio, why we have all this equipment over here Uh, It's a lot cheaper than running an NPR affiliate, but when you you cross that uncanny valley into production values that are close enough to professional, that's when these democratized channels for media production become important. And that, I think, is the, the important thing happening in YouTube is not my picture I took with my smartphone, but the breaking point set where they have a pretty good lighting grid. And they're using a $60,000 4K camera, three camera system with a TriCaster so that you can actually display their show on a 4K large screen television. And it looks the same resolution style as what's coming out of the TV studios. $60,000 is a lot, but it's a fraction of what it pays to do, cost to do a, a traditional cable show. So anyways, there's this underlying trend I think is important. YouTube is becoming the new TV for a bigger generation. This is driving... Uh, a crossing of the uncanny valley, more and more democratically distributedly produced video content is beginning to approximate the production values of low end television. That I think those are the moves I think that really disrupt the media landscape. So there's the whole engagement war happening with social media platforms. Let's put that aside for now. This I think is a trend that is also, it's also worth uh, keeping an eye on. I mean, Jesse, that's why we're doing video. I don't really know. We don't really know what exactly we're trying to accomplish by having the reasonably lit studio, a pretty good camera system, you know, some good audio. But as you heard me say all along is I just had this instinct. I think we should be there. I think things are happening. I can't tell you, I can't point to, oh, we're trying to do X, what this person's doing and we can be there in six months. But I think a couple of years from now, there's some importance to being early on this.
1: It's the same deal that you talked about originally when you, you know, provide the justification for the YouTube channel and having, you know, your core ideas, those types of like your reading yep. lists, like you can get specific content where if like you went to the podcast and go to minute 32, yeah, whatever to see Cal yep. talk about books, whereas now you can just send them the video. It's like easy. They can watch it you on can, can share.
0: Yeah. And there's something about visual. Like why do people watch video of podcasts? I, I had this conversation with a friend of mine. We went out to lunch. And he's my age, so he's like, I don't understand why you would anyone would have a video of a podcast. He's like, when are people? When are they listening to it? And I was like, no, people like to watch it.
1: It's funny. I actually figured out when they do. One of my buddies, Aton, who I hadn't seen in a while, he watches it in the gym, so he yeah. has it on the gym, and then interesting, the, like on a big TV, and then. Yeah, yeah but he what, sent me a picture. He's like, is that you? And I was like, it is me. Like, you? So then he watches it when he works out. Yeah. I think a lot is, of people do that. Which is
0: like people used to put TV on, so why uh-huh. not? I think the, the sports radio people figured that out, right? Especially like the early like Dan Patrick, uh, Colin Coward. Like they figured out people like to see yeah. you. Even if it's just they're, they're, they're in their studio with their fancy mic and they're just sitting there talking. Something about it is just that was really compelling. There's the, you know, the Sports Junkies is a, a morning sports show mm-hmm. here in D.C. They have they're now televised on the, the M- M- NBC Sports yeah. Network, right? It's just four guys around the table talking. But that is like compelling television. There's something don't underestimate, you know, our attraction to the, the visual. So I don't think the model's there yet. Like the obviously the monetization model is coming there for podcasts. I mean, uh, the ad rates are good really good shows are getting bought up in the networks for real money. You know, people are making more on podcasts than they would have made in low end TV. So like the model is there for podcasting YouTube. Not really. I mean, there's like the super like professional YouTubers trying to do the Mr. B style. I have millions and millions of viewers and trying to that, that game. But I think there's another video game that, that hasn't emerged yet. We're like high quality video approximating cable, where the revenue is not from some incredibly low CPM automated YouTube ad, but from something else. And maybe that's nothing to do with YouTube. It's on uh, private apps or networks. I don't know, but I, I mean, I think there's something.
1: Well, even on Tyler Cohen's podcast recently, he was talking to Horowitz and what's the partner's name? He was so, talking to the partner and they were talking Andre, about so how Andreessen. Yeah. Andreessen. Mark Andreessen. Andreessen yeah. yeah. And he was talking about how the, economic model for podcasts actually isn't there yet. And oh, interesting. He's, he's like, it's starting to get there, but it's still, he was explaining, it. he did a much better job of explaining it than I did, but it was pretty cool to listen to. Yeah, because I know two people, not well, but just like I've crossed paths with them or talk with them who
0: in the last year or two are, have done seven figure deals for podcasting. I mean, the interesting thing about that is like in writing, for example, which has been around forever. Seven figure deals are very very hard and they're very very rare right I mean uh, the the level of success you have to have in the world of writing in terms of where you rank among other writers to do seven figure deals is like really at the tippy top these guys doing seven figure deals for podcast are not at that super elite level it's not like okay these are the named I mean if you're if you're doing a seven figure deal for a book people know who you are mm-hmm these are not podcasters who people like. Oh yeah. I know that show. Right. So there's something interesting going on. I think it's a highly monetizable world. It, it's the, I don't know Jordan Harbinger and I talked about this when we did this last summer. I don't know. I did. I, I had him on the show a while ago and we got deep into the economics of podcasting and, and we, we tried to get into this. And I was kind of arguing that the the peak of you know, you can make a good living is actually way broader on that than in other things. He 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 kind of disagreed, but anyway,s something's interesting going on. When I when I know two people who's like if I grab someone on the street and said their name, they don't know who they are, but are doing these seven figure deals. Something's interesting going on because in almost every other media, if you're doing seven figure deals, at the very least you're a popular host of a radio show. You're like you have a you have a pretty good prime time, maybe early prime time cable news show. Your, uh, your book is at the front of the bookstore at the airport
1: and podcasting is bringing people to that level. It's similar to like internet marketing, how people kill it on the internet, you know? And like, you you can compare that to like a brick and mortar business and right. Some of these internet marketers are, you would see this simple website and it generates millions and millions of dollars a month. It's yeah. You've
0: told me about some of that world. Like the numbers are crazy. Yeah. They're insane. Yeah. 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 Forget seven, right? Talk eight
1: figures <laughs> or more, insane. right? Yeah, some of them. I mean, if you, I mean, it's really hard to figure out, but if you figure it out, I mean, but even like the seven-figure ones or whatever, I mean, that's yeah, doable. You know? Yeah, so it's interesting. I,
0: I, I love those trends. So I think video, like, so audio is getting there. Text never got there. It was very you, you, the upper limit for monetizing democratized text after the World Wide Web came along. The upper limit there was the ceiling was relatively low like and andrew sullivan could get high six figures for the daily dish but it was a huge pain you know it was a huge pain technically um you know i think some people now with Substack can can do like high six figures but it's like that's a ceiling for people who are at the very top of the game the very top of their pyramid audio seems to be you know better like i could i could replace my georgetown salary with what we're doing right now, which is a half day a week. So that's like something's happening there. And we, we see these people doing seven figure stuff Mm -hmm. and video. I think it's going to maybe have an even bigger ceiling. I just don't think it's figured it out yet. Obviously YouTube ads is not what is going to monetize video in a meaningful way. It's just the numbers aren't there. It, 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 it only rewards virality and certain types of like content that, that serves to the algorithm. Well, I think there's going to be monetization that gets free from the algorithm. So we'll mm-hmm. see. That's I mean, kind of what Mark was talking about. Right. So that's what he was...
1: I, I can't really explain it well. But I'd have to listen to it again. But he was talking about some stuff. This I was, was like, wow. So this was on uh, Tyler Cowen's podcast
0: kind of recently.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just listened to it last week. It was, Andreessen and Horowitz were both... It was just Mark. Just Mark, Mark Andreessen. Yeah. yeah. On the show. Interesting. He reads a lot, too. You probably get along with him. Never met him. You guys... I could tell you guys. Talk about him,
0: so. Yeah. Well, speaking of talking about stuff, uh, let's do a couple ads. As that's what actually allows us to keep speaking of monetization. Uh, let, let, let's do a couple ads here, and then we can get into some questions. Uh, let's start with Grammarly, one of the oldest sponsors of this show. I think they might have been, I think they might have been the original ad read on Deep Questions. I'm not sure, but if they weren't, they were one of the first test ad reads we did to prove that our that we actually had an audience who cared about these things so you, you've heard me talk about grammarly for a while I'm a fan because I'm a fan of writing clear communication whether you are sending an email or a report going to a client or a cover letter for a job application clear communication is absolutely vital if you can communicate confidently competently and clearly It just reflects an organized, competent, clear-thinking mind. It makes you a much more powerful, puts you in a much more powerful position in the job market. Grammarly can help you do that. It's an all-in-one writing tool that helps you churn out clear, concise communication quicker than ever. And when you use Grammarly and its Premium product Grammarly Premium, you get access to some pretty cutting-edge tools. It doesn't just fix your grammar mistakes, which, by the way, you have to do. You cannot have grammar mistakes in your writing. But it can do much more. You're trying to nail that perfect cold pitch. You can use Grammarly's free tone detector to make sure you're making the right impression. Let's say you have an idea that you're trying to get out clearly. This is. The whole challenge for me when I do my writing, especially New Yorker writing, is all about I have this idea and how do I get that out clearly. This is a place where Grammarly can help by doing clarity focused sentence rewrites. You said this, redo the sentence this way, same meaning, much clearer. If you use Grammarly Premium, so the the upsell premium product, they'll will also do tone transformations. These are kind of cool. Your tone is this. You want the tone to be like this. Let's show you how to make changes to do that. So Grammarly is free to download as a desktop app. It works where you do. You Wherever you write on your computer, Grammarly can be there to help you. So get to the point faster and accomplish more with Grammarly. Go to grammarly.com deep to sign up for a free account. And when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, you'll get 20% off for being my listener, but you have to use that slash deep. That's twenty percent off at Grammarly. dot com slash deep. Now, a word from another sponsor, Better Help. Think for a second about how much you care about taking care of your car, right? Imagine you had the same car for your entire life. You would put a lot of effort in. Let's keep this thing running. Let's keep the oil changed. When the timing belt is getting old, we want to replace them. Well, we're stuck with our same brains for our whole life. So why aren't we treating them the same way? How you care for your mind will affect how you experience your life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping our minds healthy. And there are plenty of ways to do this. You can challenge your mind by learning a new language. You can take naps. You can, of course, listen to the Deep Questions podcast. But you should add to the list, BetterHelp Online Therapy. We live, as always, in challenging, uneven times. I talk to a lot of people who are struggling in the mental department. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's a sense of pervasive overload. Therapy can help. Therapists are in a lot of demand right now. The one that happens to be down the street might not have any slots open. This is where it's great to have an option like BetterHelp. It is an online therapy tool that will allow you to connect with therapists without actually having to be right there. It does not have to be someone who is local. So when you use BetterHelp online therapy, you get video, phone, and even live chat only sessions. You don't even have to use the camera if you do not want to actually be seen by the other person, whatever makes you comfortable. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. It gives you access to many more potential practitioners than doing traditional therapy where you're limited to your local neighborhood. You can be matched with the therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash Questions. So if you go to betterhelp.com slash deepquestions, one word, you will get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash deepquestions. All right, let's do some questions of our own. Some deep questions of our own, Jesse. Uh, I have two in a row that are about children. So I figure we'll do. We'll start off our questions today with a child question block. Our first one comes from Sarah. Sarah says, I'm particularly fascinated in digital minimalism from a parent's perspective. I'm really concerned about how my children, the oldest of which is currently nine. Sarah, by the way, my oldest is also nine. So this is relevant. Uh, I'm particularly concerned about how my children will navigate the digital world as they reach the age when they and their peers are likely to first obtain smartphones here in the UK where we live. This is generally as they start secondary school at age 11. I'm equally concerned how they will navigate adolescence in the digital world we live now. I'd really appreciate any information or advice you may have directed towards parents on this topic. Well, Sarah, I do have some thoughts. These are the thoughts that makes me very unpopular among a lot of young adolescents, but I will give them to you nonetheless. Here's my TLDR summary of digital engagement and kids. I would worry about giving unrestricted smartphone access uh, to anyone under the age of, let's say, 16 or 17. In other words, 16 or 17 is probably the appropriate earliest age to give unrestricted smartphone access to a kid, certainly not 11. Now, there's, a, there's a couple issues here that are relevant. I believe the evidence is becoming increasingly clear that social media use during early adolescence and uh, during puberty or pre-puberty is really potentially psychologically quite damaging. Now, your kid might be fine, but there's a big chance that they won't be. This is a danger zone. Early adolescent girls in particular who do heavy uh, social media use, there's some real scary signals there. But forget the debates about the research literature. Social psych literature is very difficult. It's very difficult to get clear signals on anything. Just look at the target audience itself and see what they self-report. I hear this again and again from young adolescents. This is a source of anxiety. This is a source of feelings of self-harm. This is ruining my life. All occasions pointing towards heavy social media use on their phone. There's other issues with unrestricted uh, smartphone use as well. Excessive video game playing is a big deal. These games are very addictive, especially those that are massively multiplayer online style games. Give, for example, a young adolescent male unrestricted access to games on their phone and you might get six, seven plus hours of playing. They'll play them into the night. They'll show addictive tendencies where they can act out with anger or rage if, if the screen is trying to be taken away from them. Their brains are not ready for that. I think that is really damaging. Uh, the other issue is pornography. You give unrestricted smartphone use to a 12- or 13-year-old. You are going to potentially generate some real issues with their developing sexuality. You might also develop some real issues in how they actually relate to or treat with respect or not the opposite sex. These are real issues. And we shrug our shoulders at it and say, yeah, but uh, the other kids are doing it. And I don't think that's a strong enough rationale. I don't think that's a strong enough rationale. So what should you do instead? At the appropriate age, get them a phone with text messaging, but does not have the standard OS that can run social media apps and unrestricted web browsing. Get them a dumber phone, a feature phone that has text messaging. Sure, that's useful. That's very useful. Text me when you're done with practice and you want to be picked up. Let me text my friend and say, I'm, I'm coming over now. I think that's fine. I'm completely fine with that modern convenience. I mean, when I was in high school, it was all about pay phones and we had uh, calling card numbers we had memorized and quarters and you would try to call and hope that your parent was there. And if not, you waited and that's not great from a convenience standpoint. So texting is fine, but not unrestricted access to the web or standard apps. What you also have to do instead is help encourage and guide your child so that they can find a social community aimed at some sort of common objective or goal, whether this is a theater troupe or a sports group or, or a, a band or a small fledgling teenage company or they're, they're in the first robotics club and in some sort of, you know, a STEM style gathering, whatever it is, but something that they can be with other people and build up their skills and feel the sting of defeat and enjoy the camaraderie of success when they do well. And let this be the core of their social experience. If you have successfully a group like this, but you don't use social media, you'll be fine. You're like, yeah, I have my buddies from the track team and you know, they kind of rag on me because I'm not on TikTok or whatever, or I'm not on Snapchat or whatever, but like we have this bond and we do these things and it's just like a quirk and you will be fine. What you would want to avoid, of course, is someone whose entire Social identity is based just off of this digital world. That's no good. And if you're in that situation and take away that digital world, you're isolated. Yes. So we need alternatives. And I think that's really that's really the key to making it palatable for a 12, 13, 14, 15, maybe 16 year old not to have access to these phones is that they are entrenched in things that matter to them, that connect them to other people and give them meaning and forward drive. That's what we're wired for. That can satisfy it. They will survive without it. The only other point I want to say, Sarah, is... I picked up a a strong current during my digital minimalism book tour. I picked up a strong current from contemporary adolescence of a backlash against these companies. And the last few years has seen this major social media backlash. This is media backlash against social media. Mark Zuckerberg has been transformed into a, you know, devil style character, uh, Twitter is raked through the coals. This is all out there in the zeitgeist. I don't think these, these apps have the same atmosphere of countercultural cool that they used to. Now the countercultural move is perhaps to say, I don't use any of these things. Forget you, Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not going to use your app. Forget you. Byte dance. Uh, good for you for getting a billion users to TikTok in only four years. I don't want to be a part of your attention mining factory there is a growing countercultural street cred and being someone who knows what you're about and you're 14 and you're not on those things and you're killing it somewhere else and people like you that thread was definitely one that was growing and i think it's getting easier and easier to be one of those younger people who doesn't use these services it's not seen as square i think as much as it might be seen as forward looking so this is all going to get easier sarah Uh, so resist getting them a phone for now hopefully by the time your nine-year-old is 11 it'll be considered quite standard the fact that you are not giving them a smartphone
1: Uh, and
0: even if it's not you should resist
1: i have a quick two questions actually Mm -hmm. so in terms of getting the appropriate phone for just text messaging when do you think that should be i mean i guess it's regional um
0: so around here i don't know it could be pretty early like around here i know uh nine and 10 year olds where they don't give them a phone yet, but they give them these watches and the, the watches allows them. There's, there's three numbers programmed into it that they can uh, call. So like you're this is typically their parents, right? Um, and then you can do text messaging on the phone, but I think it's pre-programmed text like I'm on my way or you talk talking to it or something like this. But again, you can only talk to a small number of people on it and it can also be a GPS tracker that your parents can use. And like around here, these watches will sometimes be used to allow like to give more freedom to like a nine and 10 year old. Like you can walk to school and back or go to the stores because like, if you have some issue, you can just like press the button and it'll, it'll call me and I can come get you or something like that. So there's these transitional things uh, that I think are good in these close in city environments where people are otherwise worried to have their kids be completely free. I don't know. I, I mean, to me, text message available phone. I mean, I'm thinking middle school. Mm hmm. I don't know if that sounds reasonable to you. I mean, the the, the
1: kids you coach are older, right? They're high school. Yeah, they are. So they're all, you know, yeah. plugged into the matrix, right? One other question, though, um, in terms of computers, like getting kids on computers and doing that sort of thing, is there a crossover? Or? Yeah, but the, I think
0: I mean, the next question is going to be relevant to this. I, I think it's good for kids to have access to computers, yeah. and, and um, but it should be in public. Here is the family computer. It's in the middle of everything. As we go about our business, you know, preparing dinner, this or that, we see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Don't have a computer in the room, at least until, you know, what?
1: In their room. Yeah.
0: yeah. You're 17 and you're a hacker and you're, you know, you're going to go to MIT the next year. And like, fine, you can go do your computer hacking, but you're 12, 13, 14 years old. Hey, you want to go on like the Minecraft forum or whatever? And you're, you're, that's fine. But I'm going to, it's out here. And we're going to see what you're up to.
1: Yeah, that's a good idea.
0: All right. So here's a relevant related question. This is from Sam. Sam says, what is the appropriate age to get my child started with learning to code? My boys are eight and four. I want them to develop skills that can give them a great career. Um, Sam eight is not too early. I mean, if we're we're talking fundamentally, where do you have to be to potentially learn to code? You have to be comfortable working your way around the computer and computer interfaces. And you have to obviously be uh, a fluent reader and writer because code is words. You got to understand how to do words. I believe I started coding when I was probably six or seven. If I had to remember, I mean, I don't know exactly. I just know when we moved from one place to another, I moved after second grade from Houston to New Jersey. And I remember in Houston uh, messing around some with coding on uh, my mom's computer. But really when I was seven and eight and third grade is when I probably got more serious about it. So if they're interested, they can get their way around a computer. They can read. It's not too early. Here's my hot take on teaching kids to code where I differ from other people. I'm not a big believer in these dumbed down tools to help give you a quote unquote coding mindset that will then set you up to learn a programming language later. I'm a big believer of start with a real language. Do simple stuff at first, but start with the real language and in your quest to want to do cooler things with that language. That is what will stretch you to learn more and more. So I was doing this some with my nine-year-old. He was, he was interested in coding at the time. So I set him up with Python, and we use – and I would re- recommend using something like Replit, R-E-P-L-I-T. I think people – I'm saying that wrong, so my pronunciation is wrong. But it is a web-based coding environment. It costs a little bit of money, but you can just select whatever language you want to use, and all the compiling and everything is, is happening and interpreting is happening on their servers – um, so, so you don't have to configure your computer and download the latest version of Python and find a development environment. You just go to repl.it. I want to do Python. All the libraries are there. Whatever language you want to do, uh, it's also a Google Doc style shared document paradigm. So, while your kid is on there, you can be on a different computer, sharing the same document, seeing what they're doing, uh, and and helping them edit it. So, just use something like that. Start simple. Uh, I taught my kid with some gave him a book, showed him some basic stuff, and he was doing relatively simple text-based games with some inputs and conditionals. So it would like present a question, and you could type in your response, and then based on what you said, it would print out what happened next. So he was sort of working on some basic conditional text-based game logic. Uh, he kind of lost interest, but it, it was not a far step from there, if he was really into it, into building out, maybe more of an engine for those type of games, then moving on the graphics, maybe using something like Pi games, you would be surprised by how young people can master relatively complex syntax and procedure. uh, Just they memorize and learn it pretty quickly. So use real languages. They don't need blocks that they hook together and try to get the programmatic mindset. Just use languages. At least that's that's the way I did it. You know, I don't code much anymore, Jesse, but I used to be kind of a Cody nerd I can imagine <laughs> Cody nerd I I knew a lot of languages um you miss it no no so I was I was like a I, I was a bit of a computer guy but I was also a guitar guy so I was also in bands and then I was a sports guy as well like a track track athlete in high school I, I put on a lot of hats so I moved between a lot of circles mm-hmm um, but I always like coding and making video games. I just learned a lot of languages. I sort of started with basic and then you get some C and then you start writing more inline assembler. Uh, and then when I was in early high school, you can, it's not too hard to learn how to hack the assembler language that runs on the Texas instrument graphing calculators. So if you can if you can write in the underlying assembly language on those calculators you can touch the graphic memory directly and actually do so if you ever played like the actual real non-text based games in your graphing calculator that's programming directly in assembler language and so I programmed a game back then called punt return my big contribution to the world of programs and so it's a graphing calculator game in which uh you were a football player doing a punt return and so you were kind of on the bottom of the screen, but it was, you would see the the football field, the yard markers kind of scrolling past and defenders would come on the screen and you would have to maneuver your way around them. And if you could get past enough defenders, you'd get the touchdown. So that was my <laughs> big, that's my big contribution to the world of programs. But then I went to, so went the undergrad was doing computer science, doing research, uh, systemsy type research. And so doing some coding and stuff like that. And then when I got to MIT, I, I just decided I don't want to, program and i joined a theory group and that was it and i I stopped programming so we got to mit joined a theory group and that was that was the end of my programming days and so now i'm really out of shape i don't know the i don't know the modern i mean i do that's not true i I program some games
1: for my kids and python and stuff like that but i'm i'm no i'm no coder so is the theory group in terms of computer science is that like if you're a mathematician going to like applied math
0: yeah, I mean, they do have apply. It, it has a, a porous boundary with the applied mathematics group at, at MIT, but... Yeah, you know, then a
1: lot of the financial guys use applied math and, like, stocks and stuff. Yeah, so
0: there's an applied math... If you look at, and I did recently, it was for my book for various reasons, I was looking at recent hires in the, the applied math department at MIT, and some of those recent hires are doing things that could just as easily be within the theory group in the computer science department, so there is a porous border. The theory group at MIT was so cool because there was so many so many world-class famous minds that were all just on the same floor. And I talk about it on the show sometimes, but it was still really cool thinking back. Like here's multiple MacArthur genius grant winners, multiple Turing award winners, the people who invented all the things. Here's the guy who invented public key cryptography. He's the R and RSA. Here's the guy who became an MIT professor at 18 because he beautiful mind style proved this big thing about rigid geometry you know, when, when he was a teenager, you know, here's a person who invented that. Here's the person who, um, you know, uh, innovative all a quantum complexity theory. I mean, it is really cool. Yeah. Really, really cool. Really interesting. Really intimidating because it really concentrates just the superstars and MIT style of hiring is we'll wait till you're famous somewhere else you know, it was like, you talk about this, like a, or like the Lakers were in the two thousands or something. Well, wait till you're famous somewhere else. And then you will, we'll we'll bring you over here. So it's just all superstars. Just everyone
1: balls. I told you about that book about Ed Thorpe. I'm reading. And when he was at MIT back in the sixties, he, Claude Shannon was there. Oh, Shannon's a cool guy. And then they actually started becoming friends because Ed was doing all this like card counting stuff. And he wrote that book. And then they were like building this like machine to like predict roulette, like late at night. It's, it's pretty cool.
0: I got to read this book. Yeah. Shannon's a cool guy. Shannon must have been a grad student at the time because then he went on the bell. Labs. No, they were
1: on the same age. He was teaching, I think. Oh, he was doing some teaching right there. there. Yeah. He was teaching there. The okay. Day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Shannon's an interesting character. For his master's thesis, he basically invented digital electronics. That was his master's thesis.
1: So he's a, it was he, saying in the book, it was talking about how he had these shoes that he would like put on and like he could walk on water and his neighbors like, who is this guy? He's
0: a weird guy. Uh, <laughs> So I'll shout out to my, my friend Jimmy Sunny's book, Mind at Play. It's a fantastic Shannon biography, Mind at Play. Uh, Sonny has a new book out about the uh, PayPal mafia called The Founders. I also recommend that, um, but Mind at Play. I like that book because I'm a Shannon fan. All right, let's do some more questions. I got one here from Patrick, not about children. So figure we get a quick one in here. Patrick says, what are your suggestions to widen the vocabulary of a non-native English speaker for scientific writing? Well, reading is probably the best way to do this. You want to read as much science related writing as you can. I would probably focus more on science journalism. So books written by good science journalists than I would actually scientific papers. A lot of scientific papers are written pretty poorly you know scientists have other things on their mind you're actually going to pick up probably better uh, writing habits from science adjacent writing so reading a good science journal so i'd read as much of that as possible and then write as much as possible specifically trying to deploy rhythms turns of phrases techniques that you're seeing again and again in these award caliber science journals and books trying to deploy some of that in your own writing that stretch is where you're going to get better but it's all an exposure game read 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 write 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 write, write. back and forth back and forth That's the feedback loop that's going to make you better. All right, let's do a call. I think we have a call here, Jesse, that um, it's going to set up an even bigger topic I want to discuss. Okay, sounds good.
2: Hi, Kel. My name is Vito. I'm an engineering manager at the tech company. As an engineering manager, I have a lot of uh, meetings, and my calendar is always full. I'm having a hard time controlling this spiraling calendar, and I would like to ask you, what do you think I could do? I will have a lot of meetings. It is a part of my job I cannot avoid, but right now I'm having full days with back-to-back meetings, and it is often the case that meetings will be scheduled right after one another. I do have a, a a good scenario here that I control a lot of these meetings, and when they happen and I can reschedule them, a lot of them, not all of them, of course, but a lot of them I can't. So I do have some control over the duration of these calls, when do they happen, if they meet up against each other or not. So uh, I would like to ask you, what do, what is your suggestion on controlling this calendar? Should I have uh, a little bit of time between every, every meeting? Should I schedule a lot of them together so that I have uh, bigger blocks on other parts of my day or maybe other parts of my week, and then I have some days full and others not? How would you handle a situation where your calendar is full and you need to have a lot of meetings, but you can move them around a little bit? What's what, what your take on this?
0: Well, I mean, Victor, meeting overload is a perennial problem. I think it's a problem that is worse these days than it's ever been before. So it's a good excuse to talk about meetings. Now, probably the best advice here is to uh, be really weird in an unsettling way, but not a way that, you know, directly is going to get you fired. And then people just aren't going to want you in the meetings. This is what I'm going to suggest. And I think this is this is going to be the solution to your problem, Victor. I want you to come into each of those meetings with a squid, a squid on your head. Don't really mention it. Just you come in, you're in the meeting. Maybe it smells a little bit weird. And then just throughout the meeting, keep breaking in the volunteer to say, you Can I tell you what I really, really hate squids and just kind of keep bringing that up. And then, you know, someone else will be talking and, and and you just say, you know, beady eyes, that, that devilish beak Satan spawn. They are squids we could do without. I'm telling you, you do this enough. The squids on your head. Maybe sometimes you come in with a fishing rod, but like you don't talk about it. Do this long enough and people are like, no, Victor, we're cool. We'll, um, we'll email you the notes. Like, don't worry about it. Like, it's, it's really gonna, it's nothing because it's not, it's unsettling, but it's not like an HR violation, right? Like you're not, you're not coming in there and being like, let me tell you what I hate about people with red hair. It's squids, you know, this doesn't work if you're boss is a squid actually no. okay let's 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 be more serious here i want to use this as an excuse to go through my standard toolbox for taming meetings Uh, there's multiple different tools that can be deployed to tame meetings in exactly victor's situation a situation where you can't just not go to meetings and victor is really clear about this here i can't not do these i can't not do these don't tell me to stop do these i can't not do these great A lot of people are in that situation, be it in their office or over Zoom, but it's lots of meetings. I have a toolbox. I'm going to give you this toolbox and you can pick and choose which of these things might work best. So these are all things I've written about before, but I'm going to bring them all together. I have four ideas to share. All right. Idea number one, meeting buffer. So the meeting buffer method is all about working with your calendar in a slightly smarter way. And here's how it works. If you have to set up a meeting and you know how long that meeting is going to be. So often meetings have hard stops, right? It's a, it's one hour. That's the hard stop. Don't just block out that hour on your calendar. Add 15 to 20 minutes to that block. So it's not just if the meeting is supposed to be from one to two, you have one to two fifteen or one to two twenty actually blocked off on your calendar and if your calendar is public everyone sees that as what's blocked off if it's not public you just treat it like any other meeting i'm next available at 2:15 i'm next available at 2:20 what you then do with this 15 to 20 minute buffer period is that is where you process everything that came up in that meeting to get it out of your mind to take the small steps, do the small tasks that could be done right away, the capture in whatever systems you use to longer term tasks. It is how you clear out the mental buffer before the next meeting. This is important because this is a, its absence can create one of the real killer issues of a heavy meeting schedule, which is you get into a meeting, it generates new obligations and plans and things that's all up there as open loops. And then you go straight into the next meeting. You haven't dealt with those open loops yet. And now new ones are being generated. It's very stressful. Our minds hates it. We want to shut the door on one thing before we move to the other meeting buffers is going to make you feel 50% less anxious about a meeting filled day. Small hack goes a long way. All right. So what I'm going to do here is I go through these, these uh, tools. Each one is going to get a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more radical than the one that follows. So meeting buffers is number one. Let's now ratchet up the stakes here with tool number two which is the one for you, one for me approach to meeting scheduling. Here's how it works. If I'm putting a meeting on my calendar, I need to then within one week of that date, so let's say five work days, schedule an equal amount of time that is protected time for me to just work without distraction. You want to put an hour long meeting on my calendar for Monday. I'm going to find some time on Tuesday where I'm going to break schedule an hour long work block, deep work block for me. And I, I don't want to say deep work block. It could be whatever. It could be uh just get my act together, go through my inbox, just take a breather and try to organize everything that's going on. I don't care what you do in it, but it's a non-meeting block. One-to-one ratio is the default application of this tool. Two-hour meeting here, I have to find two hours later in the, the week that I protect. And when it's on my calendar, I treat it as a meeting with myself. That time is no longer available for other people to come and take it. Now, as other meetings fill into your calendar, you might have to try to fit these in elsewhere. But what you'll end up with is enforcing a predetermined ratio of meeting the non-meeting time. And so I like the one-to-one ratio. One-to-one every minute in a meeting gets a minute of protected time. I like that ratio. You might use different ratios depending on what you do for a living. If you're an executive that is almost always in meetings, that's where most of your work happens. Maybe it's a two-to-one ratio. So for every meeting, you, you schedule half that length in undistracted time for yourself somewhere else in your calendar on the other hand maybe if you're in a more concentration forward position it's a one to two ratio for every hour of meeting here i'm going to find two hours somewhere else but anyways the key here is you're being intentional about what ratio you want your time to be collaborative versus individual concentration and you're taking advantage of the calendar And the social and professional convention around this time is blocked. So it's not available to actually enforce that ratio. All right. Idea number three. Again, let's ratchet up a little bit. Wage war on quote unquote standing meetings. Now in academia, this is a killer. I think this is a killer in a lot of other places as well. It is people who are, who have been assigned. Okay. We're, Working on this obligation. Here is a project that, you know, me and Jesse and this other person have been assigned to work on. This is an open obligation. I'm stressed. Like, how am I going to make progress on this? I don't listen to Cal Newport, so I don't do multi-scale planning. What is the easiest thing you can do in that moment to assuage your anxiety about making progress on a project? You say, I know what we'll do. All right, Jesse. All right, other guy. Standing meeting. Let's just get a meeting on repeat so we know at the very least every week Tuesday at 2.30 that we get together on Zoom and we talk about this thing. And now I can be like, whew, this will be you know, not forgotten because I trust meetings on my calendar. This can completely take over your calendar with all of these different standing meetings, one for everything you're working on, where the actual amount of useful collaboration that happens is often very little. Like sometimes the meeting's a forcing function for you to do something, but it, it clogs up your calendar. It's a big source of calendar uh, congestion. So wage war on them. Replace standing meetings with much more concrete processes for how you're going to make progress on this specific project. So you don't say, let's just meet Tuesdays at 2 30. You say, well, okay, what is the next thing that needs to happen here? We need a draft of this client report with some commentary. Great. Jesse, you have the ball here, write that report. You write that draft. Once you have a good draft, put it into this Google doc in this folder, like a shared doc where we can see it, send us a note to say it's ready. That will start a, a, 24 hour timer for us to look at it, get it done this week. And look, I have a, a, a standing office hours on Friday's. That will be the time, like, if, if I have any big questions or you have any big questions, come meet me there. I don't know. I'm thinking about this out loud, but my point is, is it's specific and it's concrete. What is the next thing that has to happen for this project? Okay, who's doing it? How do they signal they're done? What happens after they're done? How do we get to the next step? So it's not just let's meet again next Tuesday. It's let's do this specific work and here's how it's going to unfold. So replacing standing meetings with concrete project-specific processes for how you're going to get to the next step is way more effective than let's just get on Zoom every week and small talk for a while and then kind of make excuses for why we didn't get things done. All right. So the, the last thing I want to recommend for waging or tackling meetings, ratcheting up again, is office hours plus reverse meetings. Office hours are great. Regular times that you are available this time on these days, I'm always available. You can come into my office. My phone is on. I have a Zoom window open if you're in a hybrid environment. No appointment necessary. Come grab me. That is great on its own. It allows, for example, small issues to be taken care of without having to have asynchronous back and forth conversations or hold dedicated meetings. Just stop by my office hours and we'll chat about it, right? That's great. But it can be used to implement this more aggressive notion that I call the reverse meetings concept concept subscribers to my newsletter have heard me talk about this. little chance for a plug, by the way. If you don't subscribe to my newsletter, you should. CalNewport.com, I've been writing that since 2007, roughly one article per week about all the types of stuff I talk about here. Plug ended. So the reverse meeting concept leverages office hours in a way that I think is quite powerful. Here's how it works. The standard way meetings unfold is, I need your help, this three or four people's help on something I'm trying to work on. I need some input. I need to assign them some tasks. The standard thing to do is I'm going to organize an hour long meeting. So now six of us have to give up an hour of our time to come to this meeting so that I can make progress on this thing that I'm trying to work on. So that's six total man hours of time obligation generated by a meeting. Reverse meetings leverages office hours to significantly reduce that footprint. It says, okay, if I need help, feedback, or assignments from each of you five or six people, to make progress on this meeting, I am going to go to each of your office hours one by one. I will come to you. I'm not going to force you all to come to me and take this time out of your schedule. I'll come to you in time you've already put aside for types of quick discussions. And with each of you I'll I'll hey, what do you think about this? Could you take this on? Now let's say on average I talk to each of you for 10 minutes. Now it's less convenient for me because your office hours might be spread out, so I have to Take three days and remember to go to talk to each of you. The onus is on me. I have to do more work, but let's look at the total man hour footprint of what just happened before we had six people spending an hour, six total hours of time being taken away from other types of pursuits in this stand in this setup. It is significantly less. There's me doing 10 minutes with five other people. So if we want to add that up we do 50 minutes times two because it's the time I'm spending the time you're you're spending. So now we're less than two hours. We're closer to an hour and a half total footprint. So we've reduced this footprint by a significant amount. We have also made the life easier for these other five people. Me coming to your office hours, we are already there taking calls and having people coming in and chatting with you for 10 minutes is a no-op in terms of an impact on your schedule. It was time you'd already set a time for that. That's such a less... Of a, of a of a injury to your schedule than you having to actually put aside a full hour that you've now lost outside of your office hours to doing this discussion. The only person who maybe has to do slightly more work in this is me because I have to coordinate and go to each of you and spread out my meeting over multiple days. But you know what? Good. It should be harder to call a meeting than it is. You know, the person generating the meeting should do more work than the people who have to attend. So use office hours. As the foundation for doing reverse meetings, there's so much that can get organized without having to actually put aside extra bespoke periods of conversation for each individual project that some conversation requires. So That's my my toolkit. Meeting buffers, one-to-one ratio, one-for-you, one-to-me on your scheduling, replace standing meetings with concrete progress and process, and use office hours to switch from standard meetings to reverse meetings. All of those things will really help. There you go. The great thing about summer for professors, Jesse, is
1: meetings go away. No more meetings, baby. No more meetings. And no more meetings for you this fall either, right? Well, no meetings. Some of us not teaching. Oh, you still have meetings.
0: Yeah. So summertime, summertime, I'm off the clock.
1: You still have to go to the meetings.
0: Well, but in like summertime, I'm not a professor. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So like in summertime, I pay my own way. Uh, I'm on a 10 month salary at Georgetown. Yep. So I, I can do whatever this fall. I'm on teaching leaves. So I don't have to teach, which does save a lot of time, but it's not, it's also just normal academic life still happens. Mm-hmm. so Meetings and this and that. And I don't think they're going to put up with and rightly. So I think we're probably past that period where it's like, I'm just going to have to zoom into this faculty meeting because, uh, you know, the virus or this or that. I think we're probably past those point now. Everyone's had COVID three times. I think like we're probably going to be back to, you got to come in. You know, the dean wants to meet with you. You're coming to meet with the dean. We're having a faculty meeting. You're coming in for the faculty meeting.
1: I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Academia is slow about that stuff. But. I think a lot of the other professors will probably push back, too. So you won't be along?
0: Yeah. Well, if anyone asks, I'm incredibly worried about uh, – here's the problem with prof- – I could say I'm incredibly worried about picking up COVID so I can't come to the meetings – but we've been teaching in full classrooms for, for a long time at this point. So it's it's kind of hard to argue that like the thing I'm really worried about is the 20 minutes that's me and you in an office, not the 50 kids that I'm lecturing to. But it'll be good. I had missed the campus, is nice. It'll be nice because I build days around it. You know, yeah, so if you I'm gonna the, be a campus. Too. Yeah, I can do hit up the gym. I can work in their libraries. It's like a nice, yeah, nice change of environment. I mean, it's a sweet campus. It really is nice, yeah. All right. Well, speaking of nice. If you are looking for a new doctor and you don't know where to look, who takes my insurance, who does people trust, and you're not quite sure how to do this, you need ZocDoc. You've heard us talk about ZocDoc.com on this show on multiple occasions, Z-O-C-D-O-C. It's a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist under the sun, whether you're trying to straighten your teeth, fix an aching back, or get that mole checked out, or anything else, ZocDoc has you covered. You know, I now have two different doctors in my life that use ZocDoc. My primary care physician and my dentist both use ZocDoc.com. So I think that is uh, quite useful. So you go to ZocDoc.com, to find the doctor that's right for you. You can book your appointment right there. Find times that work for your schedule. Make sure they take your insurance. Read those reviews. All of that is available on ZocDoc.com. So go to ZocDoc.com slash deep and download the ZocDoc app for free Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. Trying to think what would be the hardest here would be let's say you got a doctor named Tom Tom Knox uh, I got my Doc Tom Knox on com. I think what would be the most challenging possible read here my Doc Tom Knox on ZocDoc.com printed on a dot matrix that's printer. like a Bill Burr ad right there yeah No, I think Bill Burr would then yeah the company uh, like really go after the company I heard him on Tim Ferriss's television show I think Tim Ferriss has a television show it's like on DirecTV
1: I did not know that yeah I saw that he's recently on an episode again he's not on TV.
0: so that Bill Burr episode of Tim Ferriss is the audio from Tim's television show Fearless and you can watch it on oh, YouTube okay it's like yeah. a huge studio with like an audience
1: yeah. and it looks like uh, he Hulk did that, that show like several years ago so he's maybe, been reposting a lot of them. So you think this is a repost? It's gotta be, because I, I think. Because he's been I mean, I've listened to a bunch of those first ones. I think the Fearless he did like three or four
0: years ago. Yeah. But so what we're trying to say here is that Bill Burr, Bill Burr supports Zocdoc.com, in particular his Doc Tom Knox that Bill Burr found on Zocdoc.com. So that's Z O C D O C dot com slash deep. Zocdoc. slash deep. Ah. I almost got it. Perfect. Jesse. I made one mistake, one mistake, but pretty good. Uh, let's also talk about eight sleep listeners from last week. know eight sleep is the ultimate game changer for good sleep because it allows you to control the temperature of your sleeping environment. You put on the eight sleep pod cover and you can adjust the temperature of your mattress from being as cool as 55 degrees to as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Clinical data shows that eight sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, a 32% improvement in sleep quality, and 34% more deep sleep. I uh, I need coldness to sleep, so I am a big eight sleep fan. If I can make my mattress cool, I am happy as I threatened last week. I'm going to start wearing my eight sleep pro pod cover to the podcast draped around me set to 55 degrees so I can be cool. I'm going to bring it to my classroom at Georgetown as well. Heat is not something I love. So I am a fan of eight sleep. So go to eight deep to redeem exclusive 4th of July savings and start sleeping cool this summer. Eight Sleep currently ships within the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., as well as select countries in the E.U. and Australia. That's eightsleep.com slash deep. All right, what do we got here? Do a couple more questions. Always check out our time. Let's do a couple more questions here. This one comes from Maria. Maria says, my goal is to read more. I replace checking my phone with reading books. However, with more technical books, it's hard to jump in and out. So I find I struggle to make progress. If I only have five to ten minutes, such as waiting in a line, it takes some time to remember where I left off conceptually, and I have to reread a couple of paragraphs before I know what specific point is discussed. And by the time I have caught up, I need to put the book down. Well, Maria, I like that you are using a... a higher quality cognitive alternative to just looking at your phone when you're bored in line. Reading is a great option. The solution to your particular issue with this strategy is don't read highly technical books in this context. Different activities are better suited for different situations. So if you're reading in line novels, as well as episodic or biographical nonfiction, this is really good for jumping in and out. I usually have some sort of biographical or episodic nonfiction I'm listening to on Audible so I can turn that on when oh I need to go, whatever, put my laundry in one of these quick five to 10 minute things. I mean, I I find business biographies, for example, where it's, you know, the story of whatever uh, universals rise or the CBS's moment of success during the early two thousands. Those are really well suited to jumping in and out because when I say episodic, I mean, they're talking about this show. They're talking about this thing that happened. They're talking about that thing that happened. It's sort of individual stories. You can come in and out. You don't have to keep up with highly technical things. Novels can be the same way you Just jump back in into the action. It's interesting. Tell you, you jump back out. If you're reading in line, you might also consider our good friends over at mouse books. This is a product that I like quite a bit. I've known Brian and Dave in particular for a long time now. Mouse books produce these pocket-sized condensed or abridged versions of famous books or short stories. They are uh, look like a field notes notebook, if that's useful. I think they might use the same printer who does the field notes notebooks. Uh, so anyways, it's a little bit smaller than a standard smartphone. And the idea is you can have that in your pocket whenever, wherever you have your phone, so in any instance, when you would pull out your phone, you pull out a mouse book instead. So I think that's a cool way to have some more erudite exposure to the world of literature and philosophy while you're waiting in line. Anyways, good for you. Good for you. And the reason why I don't want you to look at your phone in that situation is not that there's bad. It's just by default bad. It's not the phone that is bad. It is these attention economy companies that dwell on your phone and can play your brain stem like a harpsichord. The TikToks of the world, the Instagrams of the world, the Twitters of the world, that just gets its hooks into your brain. That's what I want you to get away from being the default. So, you know, if you're if you're taking out your phone to work on a Wordle, I don't think that's so bad. But if you're slack the drool coming down the side as you're mm-hmm. on TikTok videos, not good for you. All right, let's do one more thing. Let's end here with a call, Jesse. There's one I thought was potentially kind of interesting.
1: All right, sounds good.
3: Hi, Cal. It's Hattie from Toronto, Canada. Thank you for all your hard work. I really appreciate it. The question I wanted to ask today is given um, most people's inability to to change the way they think and do things and take on high quality leisure and focus time, I've, I've realized more recently after doing the Clifton strength test That not everybody possesses the skills to focus, think big picture, uh, consume high quality content, really think about everything that you talk about. So I'm starting to think that there are characteristics that make people um, more able to adjust to your way of thinking to really get an edge on everybody else. And so I was just wondering, do you have any advice for helping people who don't naturally gravitate towards focused work to do more of it, to consume better media, to get less distracted. Because I think it comes easier to some than it does to others. Thank you so much, Gal. Bye-bye.
0: Well, Hattie, it's a good question. I agree with parts of your premise, and, and I vehemently disagree with other parts of your premise. So I think this will be productive to discuss. A quick aside The Clifton Strength Finders is interesting. It's an interesting backstory, interesting backstory there. So it was Don Clifton. This would have been much earlier in the 20th century was really an innovator in using quantitative data to. Make predictions or assessment. So the, the, his strengths finders was a good example. Uh, you take this test and the numbers are crunched and they can tell you what your strengths were. They're also really ahead of the game on employee satisfaction. We, we run this survey by your employees and it crunches down to a number and we can figure out, you know, who is unhappy, who is they could do this with customer satisfaction really well. Let's give this standard survey. We crunch the numbers and get a score that tells us, are your customers happy? Did this latest change make them more happy or not? So Don Clifton was really ahead on that. Our families had lots of interesting intersections with that, the Clifton family. Really quick aside, all right, so Don Clifton starts this company, Survey Research International, SRI, based out of Nebraska. In the late 1980s, they buy a market research company in Houston, Texas, where my dad was one of the partners. And then soon after, SRI bought Gallup, and they uh, they took my dad from the market research firm in Houston and put him in charge of the Gallup poll. And so I grew up kind of surrounded by the the Clifton legacy. Don's son Jim Clifton, until recently, was the the CEO of the company. They took the name Gallup, but it used to be SRI. And so I've run into the Cliftons quite a bit and grew up hearing about all these Clifton products. they're very really interesting. Don Clifton was really ahead of the game. All right. That's an aside. I want to push back on your premise that, well, you know, some people just aren't suited to focusing or consuming high-quality information or doing high-quality leisure. I don't agree with that. I think that's like saying, look, some people just aren't suited for eating good food and exercising. Like they just need to eat junk food and they can't really exercise. That's not a fundamental attribute of a person. You can move your diet towards better food. You can start exercising. You can get in better shape. You can eat better food. Anyone has access to that. So I I don't think that there is a fundamental necessary precondition aptitude to be able to do focus or to consume higher quality information or to do more higher quality leisure. You do, however, have to get in cognitive shape to do so. So if I look at you and you mainly eat terrible food and you never exercise, if you went out and said, "Here's what I did, Cal. I tried to go for a jog, and uh, it was terrible. I, I barely got very far before I was completely winded and I felt really bad. and And I, I tried to eat some, you know, uh, broccoli, Rob, and it just is like I don't know. I, I had a hard time preparing. It. I'm just not meant to be in shape or eat good food. I'm like nonsense. You just started. You have to start training." You know, you're going to have to start with walking and then go from walking to jogging and give it six months of regular work and you'll be much better shape for running. Again, if as we'd like to come back to again and again, if Alexander Sarsgaard can get into Viking shape in six months, you can get into the ability to run a mile in six months. That is our touchstone for a lot of things. Same thing with food. You got to start eating a little bit better, making more things at home, getting more used to it. It just takes some work. We're used to that in the world of fitness. We're used to that in the world of health. Well, we should translate that comfort, that idea that we're comfortable with, to the world of cognitive pursuits as well. Yes, if you're slack jawed with the drool looking at TikTok most of the time, uh, you're not going to do well when you pick up a book. If you're captain email and Slack, When you say, now it's time for me to go do deep work and figure out a big new philosophical concept, it's not going to go well. But you know what? If you do the cognitive equivalent of Sarsgaard's Viking training, you will get better at that. And We've talked about what that could be, but you need to embrace boredom. So on a semi-regular basis, have brief exposures to boredom. You're waiting in line. You do nothing. Once a week, do a longer exposure like a walk with nothing in your ears. That gets you more comfortable with the idea that sometimes you don't get stimuli when you're bored then you can begin doing direct stretch training on your concentration ability do intervals here's my watch 10 minutes no distraction or i have to reset the watch once you're comfortable working hard for 10 make it 15 you can slowly start pushing that up do productive meditation sections one problem in my head work on it while walking when my attention wanders notice and bring it back notice and bring it back the walks can start small the problems you're working on your head can start easy Expand and increase as you get more comfortable. You can do these things. You know what's going to happen over time? You're going to be more comfortable reading books, watching a harder movie and not having to look at a tablet, thinking about a hard business problem, writing something for 90 minutes at a time without having to jump to the cognitive crutch of looking at email or looking at Slack. You will get in better shape. And I think everyone should get in that shape, just like no one should just be eating junk food and never move. You should not be in a cognitive situation in which you rarely challenge your mind or have any freedom from constant, highly optimized distraction. Now, what about the types of aptitudes that are pointed out in things like the Clifton StrengthFinders test? I think we're talking about something different there. Now, you do a StrengthFinders test, you might find I'm really well suited to coordinating teams is maybe more my strength than it is trying to come up with original strategy. Well, that's useful for shaping which direction you go in your career. But it doesn't mean you can't have a floor of cognitive comfort of I can concentrate when I need to. I can consume higher quality leisure. Everyone can have that floor. The strengths might tell you what general direction you might want to go in your career. The other thing people talk about is, you know, hey, look, maybe I'm not super brainiac. I'm not one of those MIT theory group professors that can, and this is a true story, move things with their mind, just stare at something and make it move. That's how smart they are. That might be true, but those type of fundamental abilities, like sort of raw horsepower you might be born with, that's only relevant in terms of the ceiling you can hit. Right. And again, we're comfortable with this when it comes to fitness, you're not going to tell me don't get in better shape and start jogging because you know what? You're never going to be on the Olympic team. Like your genes aren't going to allow you to actually run a fast enough mile to be on the Olympics. I say, that's fine. I don't need to compete with Olympic athletes. I need to be able to run a mile uh, without throwing up. That's different. So same thing. You don't need to be able to move things with your mind. Like some MacArthur award winning MIT professor in order to be able to focus on a business problem for an hour and to be able to go on a long walk without any distraction. You can be in good shape without having to be elite. So that's what I'm going to come down on here, Hadi. It's yes, maybe we have different aptitudes that we should keep in mind when we do our lifestyle center career planning and try to think what we want our life to be like, what type of things we want to work on. But everyone should have a base level, and everyone can accomplish a base level of cognitive fitness. Just like you should with your physical health, your mind needs to have a declaration of freedom from the slack jaw distraction and the easy diversion of email and slack, the slack jaw distraction of a, of a TikTok or of an Instagram, you should be comfortable being alone with your own thoughts. You should be comfortable concentrating on something kind of difficult. You should be con- comfortable with self-reflection. Boredom shouldn't scare you. Everyone should be able to get there, just like everyone should be able to go on a light jog without dry heaving when it's over. So, Hattie, I, I get the spirit of your question, but I'm going to
1: push back on some of the specifics. Embracing boarding really works. Yeah. Like I heard you say that, I don't know, several years ago before I even knew you and I started doing it. it was Did you know, notice, you noticed a difference? Huge difference. Yeah. Now I do it and I see people, they can't do it. They don't even know what that means.
0: Yeah. Well, for you, it must be really useful. Uh, you might, must notice it when you're doing even just casual athletic pursuits, right? But, yeah. Like what about golf? If you're comfortable, just let me just stay with. What's going on in this game? Yeah, and not let my attention wander. It really I'm, I'm assuming the players who look at their phone all the time in between holes. I don't
1: even bring my phone. Like, yeah, they they get distracted all the time.
0: Like, it's got a, the number of bad shots you make. Your bad shot rate has to go up quite a bit, right? If you're constantly it's got in context because I doing.
1: mean, say somebody hits a bad shot, then their reaction would be to look at their phone, say they get bad news, and that's like hitting two bad shots. Yeah, or and, say they get you know, and then they're not there for the next shot. And, it's a spiral. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes like you could have somebody like say you're like in a partner event or whatever and they're on their phone the whole time it's like they're not in the game Like they're not there yeah yeah
0: also it feels bad it, it's this weird trade-off like the, the the state of constant distraction it's it's appealing in the moment in the sense of it's uh i don't know numbing but it's not the same type of satisfaction of man it's beautiful out here and uh i'm just enjoying it and I'm walking you know across the course and the, yeah. the sun is starting to go down and and your mind is kind of clear and present like that's way more satisfying
1: well it's like you said like way back in the day how you know the the financials for these people is like 20x like what oil exploration is so, yeah I mean it's designed to do that and it's working
0: yeah <laughs> yeah they're really good I'm, I've been going deep I'm they're right, really good at it like as you know I was writing right before this Episode and I have to run now to keep writing. I have a deadline and 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 I don't like to give details of articles before they're out. But I'm working on an article right now, um, and I have to go kind of deep into TikTok, and their algorithm and and its rise, to fame. Let me just say this. Here's my summary. They're good at it. <laughs> like they're good at it. Just like uh, you know, um, uh, uh, what's that chicken everyone likes or whatever. The uh, I don't know the brands very well. Chick fil A. Chick fil A. The- Like, they're really good at cooking things where you're like, man, this is really good. I really like eating this, right? Like, they're good at it. There's a reason why there's always a line there. Yeah. You know, they're good at it. McDonald's fries, like, they're really good at it. You're like, I'm just going to keep eating these. Mm -hmm. I could, I could eat a bucket of these things. TikTok is really good at just next thing, next thing, next thing, you know, but it's just a different feel it's like eating the mcdonald's flies you Mm -hmm. eat the bucket like in the moment you're like i kind of am glad i'm doing this then when you're done you're not happy with the world i think it's the same thing you come off of like all the scrolling like i kind of numb myself i'm unhappy it's just it doesn't it doesn't it's distraction snacking it doesn't serve what you really need doesn't serve the real meal that the brain the brain actually desires so there you go i don't care what the, the strength finder says stop looking at your phone so much all right. Well, speaking of stopping and working on deeper things, I got to go right. So let's uh, wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you, everyone who listened. If you like what you saw, you will like, I said backwards, if you like what you heard, you will like what you see at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cal Newport Media. Full videos of full episodes as well as highlighted clips are available there. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And Until then, as always, stay deep.